All right, guys, welcome back to Within Tolerance. This is episode 14, and this is a long-awaited episode. We are joined with Jay Pearson and then, of course, Dylan Jackson. So without further ado, let's just get into it. Dylan, would you like to introduce Jay to everyone out there? Yeah, so some of you may know him from his company, Pearson Workholding, um, or his YouTube channel by the same name, or Instagram. Uh, they make some amazing workholding stuff. But, uh, you know, Jay, who is Jay Pearson? Like, what is... Pearson Workholding for those of, you know, anybody of our who's listening who hasn't, uh, I guess, seen your products, you know, what's the the real quick summary of what you guys do? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. I've been uh, catching up on episodes. Pretty cool. I liked uh, the the episode with Danny because he's a robot guy and we're, we're diving headfirst again into robotics and uh, specifically you are. And then, uh, of course, Adam, he's like, an amazing machinist. So that's really neat. I feel like I'm in good company. So yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so uh, Pearson Workholding. So I started getting into manufacturing uh, when I was a kid. My my dad and mom, they ran a precision sheet metal shop, like electronic enclosures. Think of the enclosure on your on a PC, like on a desktop, that type of thing. Not another sheet metal would be um, like ducting. But, but they didn't do that. It's precision sheet metal. So I grew up around manufacturing. My dad was kind of a, a forward thinker in that industry. And he was one of the first in Southern California to have a cam system running his turret punch press. Back then it was teletype, which was you would type in G code and it would punch holes in a one inch wide piece of paper tape. And then you'd feed it and the machine would read this paper tape, you know? And then he actually used like, uh, RS-232, which was this awesome brand new technology back in the 80s, you know, <laughs> and and um, just being around him and he he built his own quoting software. So he was pretty efficient. Um, he was, uh, maybe I'll get into this later, but he was, he, he practiced a lot of lean without knowing it. So in, in my book, you don't accidentally practice lean. It's very intentional, um, but he had a lot of things to reduce waste looking back. So that was my, that, that's how far back I go. Um, I started getting into machining in 2002. Um, I, I had an idea for some mountain bike suspension linkages, uh, upgrades that I was designing, having other shops uh, make, and then I would sell them on eBay. Uh, through that, I realized, man, that I'm splitting the profits with the shop. I'm going to go buy a machine. I thought you could just buy a machine, you know, which you can and then make parts. And it's not that easy, you know? Especially in the early 2000s, there was no YouTube. Uh, trade schools were, they were around, but they just weren't as accessible, you know, as I think they are today. Um, gosh, the, the internet was barely around, you know. <laughs> um, and through that, uh, I, I started machining, I mean, teaching myself how to machine, first of all. Um, and then realized, man, everyone um, just makes parts with like one at a time in a vice. This is crazy. I can't go anywhere. I'm, I feel like I'm handcuffed to this machine. And so I came up with this pallet system after searching for some type of pallet solution and it didn't have any, or couldn't at least find any. And the ones I did find, they were, you had to piece them together and they were not affordable. And so, um, I, so that was a year into business. And then um, within a few years, I, I kind of went all in um, developing workholding products. Uh, by this time, it was about 04, 05, with our first pallet system uh, called the PRS, Pallet Retention System. Um, and that's really the first product that, that uh, launched the company. And then, um, and then I, I, 
I fully pivoted um, to away from contract manufacturing, away from mountain bike parts in 2005. I call that my all-in moment where I just turned my back on my customers, uh, uh, you know, politely and said, hey, I'm going a different direction. I can't make parts for you. And then I, I was kind of like, man, it's do or die. I have to make this work. And uh, fully rebranded properly in 2009. And it's been just a fun ride ever since. So this is about our our 10-year anniversary of being officially Pearson Workholding. Very cool. So uh, the PRS was your first one? Yeah, yeah. That's the predecessor to our current uh, Pro Palette system. Okay. So so you said you were doing kind of job shop work and mountain bike parts. What were you guys called then? Because I don't think I've ever heard... Yeah, it was Pearson Industries. Um, okay. Actually, if you go to PearsonIndustries.com, it forwards to Pearson Workholding. I didn't own PearsonWorkholding.com at the time. So that's when I got all my branding right. Um, if you look at our logo, it says Workholding below our, what's uh, known as a four-point star with a tail. That's the official um, uh, USPTO designation. The Workholding, before it was just Pearson with the star. Now it's Pearson star and then the Workholding portion. So yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That's really interesting. So it, it kind of came out of necessity that you needed to make work holding. Absolutely. I mean, I wanted to be lazy at the machine. And I mean, you guys as business owners and, and, and guys in the industry, you, you, can't, you can't run a machine and grow a business at the same time. Um, it may f- seem like it, it may feel like it, but man, there's so many responsibilities on, on an entrepreneur's plate that uh, running a machine is just not one you should uh, allow to take up a lot of your time. So my pallet system, the the PRS, um, actually the first one that I used, it was just really rough looking. It served a purpose to make contract manufacturing parts, uh, microwave communication components, and that was it. So um, yeah, that's that's why I developed it for my own needs first. But it looks like a lot of the design carries over to the current pro pallet system. Yeah. So the biggest change is that the the PRS had a square, what are called brake covers, those two ball lock systems. Mm-hmm. Um, they had two dowels on each side that pushed out um, because I could machine them. Um, I could mill them. I didn't have a lathe. Now we've got uh, several lathes in the company. So we just turned the round brake covers is what they're called. And um, that was a, it's, it's a more, uh, I, I suppose, mechanically accepted design of a ball lock system you know people just know what it looks like or they understand the mechanism just by looking at it totally yeah so jay walk through for anyone that is listening that doesn't know about your pallet system walk through like how it works like what are the pros what are the cons to it i know there's not a lot of cons to it but mm-hmm. you know walk through why should i switch from a vice to a pallet system yeah great question so in manufacturing, when you're trying to be competitive, like I said, if, if you have um, a person standing in front of each machine in a seven or 10 minute cycle time, they only have about the, you know that seven to 10 minute window to go do something else. So what a pallet system does is, is I relate it to baking cupcakes, believe it or not. So a, no baker bakes a cupcake one at a time. They put in a tray of parts walk away, come back, you know? So it's that same concept. Um, we use the term, and I'm pretty sure we've coined the term high density work holding. When you look at a vice and you look at a part being held in it, the majority of the surface area 
in, in the work envelope is the body of the vice. You've got the sliding carriers, the jaws, the body, all that. What a pallet system allows you to do is to use mini, mini clamps, like pretty much any of the pit bull type clamps or uniforce clamps to, to hold, you know, 10, 20, 30, sometimes 50, uh, parts on a pallet ranging from eight by 12 to 10, six, 10 by 16. Those are our, we have four sizes of pallets. And then you have a pair of these pallets identical so that when one pallet of parts is being machined, you're working on taking the parts in and out of the second pallet. And then you literally have 20 second spindle downtime where the machine stops, you blow off the pallet, you swap them, you press start, and you go back to changing parts on the pallet or tending another machine. So that's the concept of a, of a pallet system in general. Um, our pallet systems are like the, the best price. Uh, they have the best accuracy. Um, we have a direct sales model. They're always in stock. Um, we're just, I mean, humbly, humbly, I'm saying that the PAL system is just killing it in the industry. It's, it's, if you have any type of production or even if you want to take a vice and you have some prototype work, you palletize your vice, you put that vice on the pallet indicate it one time and then you put it on the pallet system and you don't have to, you, you've got a huge set of production right there so palletized work holding is the future um even if i didn't own this company i would say yes it is the future so yeah so what made you guys step into uh vacuum work holding because i always actually thought that you guys started in vacuum work holding and made your way into pallets i didn't realize it was the other way around yeah. So, I mean, uh, necessity again, uh, 2009, I was working on a vacuum system, the ones that were out there. So vacuum systems, uh, traditionally, at least in our industry, borrow from the woodworking industry. And that is just the wrong approach. You have big vacuum pumps with tanks, high CFM, um, pretty high vacuum levels, and they are just hogs. They are just energy hogs. Um, tanks fill up with coolant with chips. If you get coolant or a chip in a rotary vein vacuum pump, it's pretty much a really expensive doorstop at that point. They're just almost impossible to refurbish. Um, so I looked at that and went, man, there's, there's this science called uh, the Venturi principle, which generates a vacuum based on the flow of high pressure air. And so kind of seeing that we don't need high CFM, you need a high vacuum level, low CFM, because when you put a metal part on a vacuum chuck and it reaches maximum vacuum, there's no more air. There's no more air movement. That CFM is irrelevant. We just need absolute maximum holding power uh, deployed to that workpiece. So seeing all that science that was out there, nothing really uh, meeting the needs of the industry. I'm like, let's just do that. We came out with the SmartVac 1 in 2009. And then uh, about February 2010, the SmartVac 2, which is, it looks almost identical to what you see on our website today. Okay. That's great. Um, yeah, I just actually started, uh, somebody lent me one of your VPUs and I'm just kind of going through the, the motions of making my own vacuum yeah. work holding right now. So I'm, cool. I'm really excited to start playing around with it. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, so I guess another question we had was, uh, how did you get into lean manufacturing? You, you're kind of known in the industry as, as practicing so much lean and implementing it so simply compared to, you know, all this 5S stuff that a lot of people have exposure to really freaks them out about 
the, the word lean and things like that? And, uh, you know, how did you start on it? How did you start implementing it in your business? Things like that. Yeah. So we started, um, practicing lean out of necessity. We were at a breaking point. I had hired, uh, my right hand man to this day, John Clifton, um, high pay, high output, high cost, amazing employee. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, th- this guy's going to solve all my problems, got this growing company. And six months into it, it was like worse. We could not get stuff done. And then, um, we had a, we had a pretty big, uh, sale that we lost cause we couldn't deliver it in, in the amount of time the customer needed. And I was crushed. It was like about eight, 85 or $8,000 or $9,000 order that just went bye-bye, you know? And so I went home and I had heard of lean. Uh, For some reason, it was in the back of my mind. And I went to YouTube and typed in lean shop and lean shop tour was Mm auto-suggested. So I watched it and up popped this video from a guy named Paul Akers. And it's about, (laughs) yeah, his shop tour is about like 12 or 13 minutes. And I was just totally blown away. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, wow. I can't believe that companies, small companies function like that. This is amazing. Went back to work the next morning, uh, played it uh, in the conference room for my guy, John. And uh, John's a little bit, um, maybe uh, he's pretty down to earth. Like if I have big ideas and he's like, okay, well, what, what do you just want me to do right now? You know, boil it down. And I thought, honestly, just because most people don't like change, that John would not like it. And he slowly turned to me after the video was over and he said, that's amazing. We need to start doing that right now. So I'm like, yes, we do. So (laughs) we started, and this is my advice for anyone, start small, start simple. Um, If you, if it, there's, so there's this phrase, uh, fix what bugs you. If you've got, if you're doing something like in a, in a process running a machine, you're like, man, I'm tired of like bending over and picking up the raw material off the ground. Go get a cart and just bring it up to waist level. Um, if you're walking around looking for Allen wrenches, just get the Allen wrenches you need, keep them with that machine, buy another pack, you know, um, tool up every machine, which is just exactly what you need to do setups. Um, we started with our setup cart, our mill setup cart, and put in Kaizen foam. So we had all of our tools at our fingertips, no more, no less. And it it almost hasn't changed in the uh, five years that we started, uh, we've been practicing lean. So Jay, another question we had written down here was, how do you see other small shops, especially shops like us, that's, you know, just me or Dylan has a partner, but you know, a couple employees or just a one man show, what's the most common, you know, waste of motion or just, you know, mistake that these small shops make? I know you just kind of touched on that, but is there anything else? Yeah. Well, I would say to back up a minute, I would say, um, not seeing their need for it, not doing lean, not even looking into it, you know, cause I would, I would, I, I speak about lean every now and then at different industry events locally and and of course our youtube videos and some people go oh we tried lean it didn't work well you didn't try the right lean or you you were soured by a previous attempt at a different company to 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 attempt to try and do lean um and so i would say definitely not seeing your need for it not practicing it um eventually if your company is going to grow if it's going to scale you need to have some type of process 
and and principles in place. And Lean is is almost a hundred years old, uh, proven by Toyota. They've been doing it for about like uh, sixty or seventy years, you know. And there's so many different versions. We are pretty, at least in the Lean community, um, people are very sharing of their knowledge of their processes. And that's just, the the lean we practice is a people-centric lean, not profit-centric. So if you can make your workplace enjoyable, safe, um, easy for your employees, profit, all that stuff, um, it's just, that's a byproduct. It's a positive byproduct of lean. So So you can just get off your butt and actually do, at least just try, but start small. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I, I say like, okay, going back to my advice, uh, start small, start simple, just do one simple thing a day. Like I just toured a company and they have a running tally of how many improvements they made. And I said, well, you know, some of these, these, uh, employees are up to, um, like, let's see, that was around the 25th last week that I was at this event and they were up to like 30 improvements for that month alone on the 25th day of the month. Some were simple as, you know what? I'm left-handed. And for some reason, my phone is on the right-hand side of my desk. I just moved it over, you know, (laughs) little things like that. And when you get a bunch of little improvements uh, going and you get that, you build that culture of continual improvement, it snowballs. Next thing you know, you're like easy, easy sailing. So how do you go about changing people's like, have you had employees that have butted heads with you over that? And how have you changed their mind? Um, I, th- I think I heard you talk about it recently that, you know, eventually enough is enough and you just you let them go. But, you know, how can you go about changing somebody's mind? Um, well, I would say a good good life principle is you can't change people. You just can't. People can, can barely change themselves. Um, <laughs> if they could, there'd be no such thing as like addiction, you know, so right. um, or bad habits. Um, and so my job is to get people to um, identify waste and make small improvements to eliminate it. That's it. And um, and so, you know, if, if a guy, like I always say, if uh, I get that question, what do you do with the, uh, an employee that, that isn't picking up on lean? And I just say, let them suffer, you know, let them suffer, let them bend over, picking up heavy plates off the ground, let them keep walking. Now there's, there's an extent where if a, if an employee's, um, bad attitude or lack of willingness to jump, jump on the lean bandwagon, they're not going to do that and affects the productivity of the company. It's time for correction. You know, uh, I've never fired anyone for, you know, not being lean, but we've had lots of talks like, Hey, dude, you have to do this. Your job is not to run this machine. Your job is to improve the process of running the machine. Your job is not to ship boxes. Your job is to improve how we ship boxes, you know? And so getting them to understand that their mindset is just not in the right place. And, and, uh, you know, first of all, getting them to understand that you have their best interests in mind. That's huge. Cause if, if you're doing it for profits, it just gets gross. You know, you're seen as like a, a Scrooge and it's just, it's just weird. And then they start in their head, they start tying improvements to their paycheck. And those are totally two different uh, ballparks. Um, when you look at like what people value, what humans value, it's recognition, it's impact, it's freedom, it's influence. Uh, money is, is, uh, barely cracks the top five. 
So like we, we do morning meetings and, um, you know, there's six of us in the morning meeting and all of, all of the comments that you get in the morning meeting are positive. They really like working here. So that's when I hear that, I'm like, okay, I'm on the right track. My guys are on the right track. I'm good. So in that same vein, how do you, or do you go about tracking improvements? And if so, how do you discourage that linking of, you know, pay with improvements or things like that? Yeah, I don't track improvements. We, we highlight them. We celebrate them. Hey, everyone check out what, um, this, this small improvement Juan did or wow, John, you totally redid the foam in the Kaizen, you know, the, the lathe setup cart. That's awesome. You know, we celebrate that. Um, but then, um, going back to like, um, profit being a, uh, um, kind of like a side effect or, or a side benefit of lean. So next thing you know, we're going home on time. Uh, like it's, it's kind of at this point, a, a company policy that we don't work nights, weekends, or overtime. We have lives at home at night. We have lives on the weekend and, and then we do uh, regular bonuses and other, other monetary comp, uh, compensations and uh, benefits because we go, wow, we hit all our numbers this month. We had a record month. Yeah, let's do some profit sharing. So there's not a direct link to their improvements to their paycheck because it's that's a wrong link. You know, it should be a pr- an improvement is linked to their happiness. Happiness uh, creates good products in a healthy working environment, and a company that when all things are working right, it just has a higher profit margin. And I, as a benevolent shop owner, I'm going to share the profits with the employees. So it's not a direct link. It's a roundabout link to, to profits, more money in their pocket. Okay. That makes total sense. So I had one question I put up here and it came up while watching your robot series, which was fantastic, by the way. I mean, editing all that stuff, it was really a lot of fun to watch. And then I had a demo of a UR the following week after I think the last episode. So it was kind of full circle and very cool. But one thing that came up in it, and I, I don't know if I've ever seen it explained, is where does your idea of design things three times come from? And you know, why is this important and what made you start that philosophy? Yeah, I would, I would say that that, that comes from me um, watching and working uh, with people in the graphic design industry. Um, there's this thing like if, if I ask a graphic designer to do a business card, they're going to give me three comps. And then I pick one and then they revise it. Uh, that's great. I, that's kind of the same thing. For some reason in, in manufacturing, we, we follow, uh, you know, the whole thing like function. Like if it, if it works, it's good. It's done. Um, I, as a designer, I, I follow three things. I, first of all, there has to be function. Yes. Um, it has to work. Then I also look at the form, like what it looks like. Does it look good? Does it look bad? Um, this latest product that's probably going to come out in January, it has no visible fasteners on it. It's a really beautiful design, looks really sleek. Um, and then the third thing is, I don't know if this is a word, but manufacturability. <laughs> so yeah, totally. Um, okay, good. So, so it's got to work. First of all, it's got to look good. It's got to have good form and it's got to be easy to uh, manufacture, or at least, uh, if I can design something where we don't have to add an additional op, that's better. So like right now, this new product, I'm in the probably fourth iteration and I'm really fine tuning the manufacturability of it. So that's, that's just it. And, and really from, uh, 
a growth, a personal growth standpoint, we only get better the more times we do something. Uh, why not? We've got the time. Why not do it two, at least two more times from scratch? Right. So is this the fourth axis fixture you're talking about? Because we had actually yeah, quite, a, quite a few people, uh, Jody Olivent, Daring Manufacturing, a few people on Instagram were all asking, you know, when's it yeah. going to be available? When's it going to come out? <laughs> yeah, I get that question. I, I should probably um, hold my cards a little closer <laughs> to my chest sometimes, but I just want to get it out there. Just uh, throw it on Instagram to see the reaction um, questions that pop up. And, you know, the the community uh, in social media, especially Instagram, it's such a positive, great community. You know, it's not like the garbage YouTube comments, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's, uh, I I've met a lot of these people at different, uh, industry things. And so to get their feedback and like asking what size is it? And I go, yeah, it's this size. Oh, you mean, so it won't fit on this. And I go, wow, yeah, you're right. It won't fit on this. Okay. Maybe we do an adapter or, or a change or, you know, will it, will it have a integrated vice or will it work as a zero point system or will it have a 96 millimeter, you know, Lang pattern? Well, yes, yes, it will now, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I should, I, so, um, when we develop a product, we beat it up in-house for as long as we can. Like, for example, the Rotovice, we use it in-house for two years before it ever saw any public light. So, um, yeah, that's that's um, that's kind of like my whole design philosophy. Uh, it has to meet a need. We design it three times, and then we beat it up in-house. So. Okay. So there was actually some questions that popped up on Instagram um, in relation to product costs and things like that. Um, Triple Caution Machine Works and Adam the Machinist actually. Uh, so they asked, you know, how often are you looking at your product component costs? What tools do you use to track those kinds of things and, and continuous improvement or I guess a cost improvement on those? And then how do you assign a price to your product? You know, is it as simple as cost plus margin or should you work from a target price backwards? Um, could you go through that kind of process with us? Yeah, I do. So the first question, um, how many times do I look at like, you know, the, the costs and things like that? Rarely. I, I rarely do that. Uh, initially, you look at cost, you look at the design, um, eliminating fasteners. That's been a big push in the uh, iterations of our products because it's just a silly thing. It's not the cost of the fastener itself. It's picking it up. It's the lock tight. It's screwing it down. It's getting it to the right torque. If you can cut fasteners, that's huge all across the board. So you know, that's, that's really done. The, the costing of it is done in the design phase. Um, I think, you know, the, the few percentage points that, you know, inflation bumps up cost of products every, every year, it's not that big of a deal to me. Um, we usually just absorb those and keep the price the same. Every few years, we do have a price increase just to get to catch up or maybe get ahead of it if it's a hot seller. Um, so yeah. Um, what was the other, um, how do you assign a price to a product? I mean, is it just cost plus margin or, Mm -hmm. um, okay. Well, I, I always start with the market. Will people pay X amount of dollars for this product? And, um, I, I suppose that looking at like cost of materials and cost to make it, and then a markup from there, um, I would say that's, that's not a very good, approach um, because it doesn't take the market into account. Um, my, the way I look at it is um, 
you have to look at a product with three three ways. Like, what what does it do? First of all, that kind of goes back to to the function. Um, what is it? First of all, um, is it an inanimate object? Is it is it a tool? And then finally, how does it make you feel? So let's um, I don't know what's a good example. Um, oh, okay, perfect. So um, okay, so so Peyton, you you make Lego things. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So let's look at that. Let's look at, um, what that is now. Let's, let's take an ounce of plastic and we turn it into a plastic spoon. People just care. What is it? They're not going, wow, look at this cool polypropylene spoon. It's white and it, and it matches my mouth perfectly. No, they're just like, it's a spoon. They're going to throw it away. Okay. It just puts food in my mouth, you know? But then when you get into like what you make, they go, wow, look at this figure or this weapon. That's awesome, you know? And so it is also uh, just, let's just round up and say it is an ounce of plastic. Okay, what does it do? Well, it doesn't, doesn't really, maybe it does something, you know, it completes a set or something. But now they care about what is it? It's a cool Lego figure. And he's got this killer AR gun, you know, <laughs> no pun intended. And then that third thing, how it makes you feel. Um, Okay. Oh man, I didn't, I swear I didn't pre-plan this. The, another ounce of plastic, the American express black card. It's a super, it's just a credit card, but it's an invite only credit card. And you, and it, I think there's like a five or $10,000 annual fee to own it. So when you pull that out at a restaurant or a club, I haven't been to club in like decades, but it did. <laughs> it's going to turn attention and that makes you feel good. So you have an ounce of plastic, one's a spoon, one's a Lego figure, and one's a, a an American Express black card. Actually, I think it's titanium because the customer brought one in and it was titanium, but just go with the plastic <laughs> analogy. Um, three different purposes, three different price points, but it ha- but it's all based on the market. So, um, yeah, cost plus margin doesn't take the market into account. Not a good, not a recommended, um, uh, I don't know, pricing structure. Um, if, if you, yeah, if you're, if you're making plastic spoons, a commodity item, yes, it's probably cost plus margin. Um, if you're making Lego figures, it's, uh, it's cost plus marketing. If you're making American Express black cards, it's all marketing. It has nothing to do with cost. So probably those three three ways is how I would break it down. I swear Jay prepared more for this podcast than Dylan and I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Um, okay, good. So another kind of vein of questions we were getting and that we came up with was uh, machinery. So robots, uh, machine tools. One question was, you know, how did you decide to go over for Doosan lathes versus uh, Haas? Because it seems like you guys have quite a bit of love for Haas. A lot of your machines mm-hmm. are Haas. Uh, what made you, you know, step to a, a Fanuc and, and all these things that are so different from a Haas? Yeah, so we, I mean, my first machine that I bought in 2002 was a used uh, model year 2000 mini mill. And still own it to this day, uh, emotionally attached to it, probably going to keep it. Um, and so... I'm just used to Haas mills. Um, fast forwarding to where we are today, we would probably absolutely stay with Haas mills just because we're big on standardized uh, work. So uh, uh, 
someone can walk up to my 2000 mini mill and walk up to the 2019 of uh, what's called UMC 500 that's coming soon. Oh, congrats. It's yeah, thank you. Um, and they just get it. They can run them both. And now the Doosons, I bought my first Doosan in 2015 when my guy came on board to work for me. He had worked with Doosons and the Fanuc Control, and I just needed him to start cranking out parts on day one. So I I really didn't put much thought into it. I'm like, what do you you think of the machines? They're great. Okay. Can you run a new one? Yes. And when can you jump in? You know, okay, I can start on this date. Great. Let's time that. So I bought that. And then once a Doosan lathe hit, hit our shop floor, man, they are such well built lathes. I, I'm sure the mills are too, but, um, the lathes are just like rock solid Uh, on our Instagram. We do hard turning. Maybe you've seen a few posts of hard turning these bushings. I mean, they hold a 10th all day long. And just just really well built machines and a lot of good value. I think they're probably a little bit more pricey than a Haas, maybe like ten percent more. But uh, yeah, such a great value. And then uh, our second, um, uh, let's see, what is it? Uh, Lynx two twenty LSYC sub spindle Y axis live tooling. Um, such a great machine. It's it, I tell people it's about as close to printing money without going to jail. Because <laughs> it just spits out finished parts that are perfect. So, so what yeah, that's how we standardize. What do you make on that one? Is that like your uh, what you said was a brake shield? Is that correct? Yeah, we make the brake cover. Oh no, we don't because the brake cover starts out as a slug. Anything that we bar pull goes on that machine. Okay. So the the locking ring uh, that goes on the bottom of the pallets, all the internal components, most of, pretty much every round component that goes into our pallet systems and our vacuum systems is just spit out by that. Our shoulder bolts, um, yeah, they just come out finished. It's it's great. Oh, wow, so that thing is running all the time then, I'm sure. It's our most often run machine, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's Have great. Have you guys standardized the tooling on that so there's not as much setup time? Yeah, we, we, we so we standardize. It's got 24 turret positions, which is great. Um, we standardize, like on our VF, we have two machines that are standardized. The tools never come out unless we break them and we don't break tools these days. Um, yeah, standardizing work offsets and tool offsets and tools. It's huge. That's just the way to get ahead because we'll go from running you know, our vacuum power units, um, pull up a new program, put a raw piece of material on a vacuum chuck, and press start and go start making our, you know, nine and a half by 14 vacuum chucks and literally walk away. Zero setup time. The only setup time is pulling up the program into memory. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, along that same vein, kind of walk us, how did you get back into robots? Because I know you had one, you got rid of it. Uh, I, I've seen the e-controller now. It's like super easy to use. So I imagine that's kind of part of the reason you, jump back into one mm-hmm. um, convex machine on Instagram asked, you know, what do you think of the new 16 E and then how soon would you add another robot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So robots, I mean, I, I bought a UR 10, not the E, but a UR 10 in 2014 thinking that would be my first high, high output employee um, way, way over my head. Um, not so much the the robot. The robot itself is really simple and intuitive. It's great. But 
it's all the peripheral stuff. Like, first of all, safety, um, uh, making sure you're not dropping parts on your foot or um, smacking the, the glass. <laughs> you know, it needs to know there's always has to be like checks that the door is open before it goes to move in. Uh, we use vacuum to hold the part in the machine and also the end effector. And so we need to turn it on and make sure a vacuum switch closes to make sure we're actually holding on to the part. And um, it's all that peripheral stuff that really gets skipped in the, the sales pitch of robots. Um, you know, I, this time around, I bought a camera from Robotique, which is amazing because before I would have to perfectly align a stack of parts to pick it up. First problem there, flat parts like to stick together. And so how do you separate them? You know, a, a human could easily go, oh, whoops, I picked up one part, the top part, and the bottom part is stuck to it. You know, and I'm talking about like big flat panels, the vacuum ch- chuck type stuff. So then uh, now how do you know you're holding that part in the right spot? So you have to put like a pin board where it's at a 45 degree angle and you drop off the part and gravity pulls it down into resting against three pins. Then it goes and picks it up at a known location, accurate location. Then it loads it into the machine. Did it load it right? Were there chips in the vise? Is it pinching anything? Is the vacuum functioning? You know, is our air pressure right? All that stuff. Um, and so that that's what was the hang up my first time around in 2014. This time we look at, you know, how many pallets we make. We're, we're going to do about 2,500 pallets for our pro and mini systems this year. Wow. I am not putting a human in front of that machine. That is a robot job all day long. And so that's why we went back to that. Um, the UR16E, awesome. Like that is going to be the next robot that we buy just because of the payload. Uh, I bought the UR10E for the payload, which is like 22 pounds. Not so much the reach. The reach is nice, but the payload was really what I was looking for. So the UR16E is pretty much like a UR5 with about three feet of reach, but that, what is it, like 33 or 35 pound capacity, whereas the UR10 is 22 pounds. Um, definitely going to use that for the heavier parts we load in the, in the lathe and pallets, full-on pallets in the mill. So, yeah, I love it. I'm so glad they came out with it. Yeah, I was, I, until somebody asked the question, I had no idea that they even released it. And then I had, you know, went down that wormhole of checking it all out. And it's pretty yep. exciting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, so another question we had, or the question that I, I had was, uh, what are the biggest mistakes you see people make with both vacuum and pallet technology? Um, when, when they're getting started, you know, what, what do you, I guess, get the most questions that, uh, you know, I, I, I know people email you questions or they need help on their mm-hmm. pallets. What do you see the most often? Yeah. Uh, for, for vacuum work holding, that's, that's easy. If, if, um, if they just took the time to really understand that uh, it's all based off of two things, the power of the vacuum, our vacuum power unit's got that covered, really high vacuum power, and then the, the surface area. So like, I'll get a, a call saying, hey man, I bought your system, it ain't working, can I return it? And I go, well, let's, let's talk about it first. What's going on? Trying to hold this part, you know, I say, what are the rough dimensions? Uh, about a half inch square. And I go, okay, now to hold a half inch square part, well, vacuum, not just our vacuum, but all vacuum technology has an upper limit. It's about 14 pounds per square inch. So now that half inch square part has a maximum 
um, holding power with using vacuum of what is that? Uh, three and a half pounds. You can't, you can barely touch that with your finger. Definitely not an end mill. So, uh, not educating themselves on the limitations of vacuum. It's really meant for if you absolutely can't hold it in a vice and it's a larger panel or, or a plate, um, or something like that. Yes. Vacuum is the best way to go. Um, the second thing, and I've done a video about this is, is uh, absolutely bad gasketing. Um, people say, man, this thing doesn't work at all. And I say, well, can you send me a picture? And I look and there's like a quarter inch gap in the black rubber gasket. I'm like, dude, you've got a huge leak there. Oh, that matters. Yeah, it matters. <laughs> it actually matters. So, um, and that's really, if, if they just educated themselves more, um, that you would, you would get that. Um, sounds like I'm throwing my customers under the, the bus, but really it's just, it's just a little homework up front. And, and certainly the amount, the volume of YouTube videos we've done has, has made my phone ring less and less. Um, I, I was getting about the same 10 or 15 questions every day. And now I get maybe one or two phone calls a day because of that. So yeah, bad gasketing and not understanding the, the science behind vacuum. Um, for, for pallets, I would say, um, not considering the human factor that when you buy a 10 inch by 16 inch pallet out of the box, it's 24 pounds loaded up with parts. And I don't think people want to be lifting 30 or 35 pounds in and out of, of a machine all day long. And so I always say go with the smallest pallet possible. Uh, the only time you go to a bigger pallet is if your parts don't fit or if you can almost squeeze in like an extra row of parts. If you're right on the edge, then go ahead and go to that, that larger pallet. So those are those two things. Yeah, so Jay, out of all the products that you've made, we had a question of what is like the most, like what product are you the most proud of? Is it a, the new fourth axis fixture or is it maybe just the pro pallet system or is it maybe something that you haven't even released yet? Mm, wow. <laughs> oh man. Um, it's like asking which one of my children do I love the most? Um, <laughs> you know, I think I like each of them. I'm proud of each of them for, for different things. Uh, certainly our, our pallet system is what started our company. Um, uh, without a doubt, the vacuum product line built the company. Um, that's, that's more than, well, well like 60% of our, the company's revenue is the vacuum. Um, and I love the Rotovice because it, it really is changing uh, people's approach to fourth and fifth axis work or, or work holding, I suppose, or, or approach. Because, man, when you, uh, you know, we advertise on the website saying that it's a 12-time production boost over single-part vice work holding. Because with a vice, you're holding one part and you have access to one face. With the Rotovice, you're holding four parts. In each one of those parts, you can access three faces. So three times four, 12. Um, and we're, we sell a ton of these through Haas dealers because they show their customer the Rotovice and it's instantly intuitive. It's just a mini shrunken down tombstone, essentially tombstone vice. And then the the customer goes, yeah, I got to have that. And then the, the HFO says, well, you need a rotor, rotary unit to sell it. Let's, let's package it. You know, so they have this symbiotic relationship and, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not 
Uh, it, well, it's the newest product. It's about two years old. Uh, we don't see a lot on social media about it, but I mean, we have customers that own multiple ones and they say, yeah, we just, we used to keep our, our fourth axis on the shelf for that quote unquote one or two jobs a year. Now it's permanently bolted. We have the rotovice there and it is, that is our rotary machine and any part that we have to, to do that is fits within a three inch square cube and ha- needs holes or machining on multiple faces, it goes in the rotovice, totally improves our throughput. And we developed the rotovice out of a need to make our vacuum power units for our vacuum line quicker. And quick story behind that, you know, I we built the um, prototype and I said, okay, just run this. Hey, I got some meetings. I'll come back at the end of the day. Let me know how it went. And, and my guy, John, was running them. And uh, he said, okay, uh, we're, we're good to go on that. And I, this was at the end of the day. And I said, okay, so um, yeah, good to go for the next, uh, uh, what, like lot run or do, you, do we need to buy more material? He said, oh, no, no, they're all done. <laughs> and I think in one day we made like 80 of them where it would take about a week to get 50 of them completed. So it, this thing is just like, it was just it was just eating aluminum for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was crazy how much throughput we got with just multiple parts and access to multiple faces. Cause it's, they're machined on all six sides. So two ops in the road device and it comes out done. So I'm really more so proud of the road device just because it's, it's revolutionized how we make our other products in, in our, in our in-house processes. So the road device that's cast iron, isn't it? It is. It's you, Durabar. Okay. Mm-hmm. So do yeah. you get that? Like, I, I can't remember if it was on a shop tour, but you had mentioned you get like, you don't machine that in house, do you? Oh, uh, we do. Yeah. Oh, it do. comes, it's just a, a long six foot bar, four inch, uh, four inch square. We saw it up roughly into a nine inch uh, blanks. And then we just, we machine every surface of it. Really? I did not know yeah. that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must be the most labor-intensive part you make, I would imagine. Yeah, it is. It is definitely the most complicated part we make. Um, we've got it down to one, two, three, uh, four operations, um, but they're long. Uh, it, it takes a long time, and then then it goes to heat treat. It goes to uh, uh, bead blasting. It gets nickel plated, and it comes back to us for grinding. Tolerance on that is plus or minus two tenths. Uh, we're usually plus or minus one tenth. Um, it's, it's a tricky part to make. So, but, um, yeah, it's, it's worth it. You know, we try and price it. That's one of the things it it should cost five grand if I went off the, the cost plus, uh, you know, approach, but it's right at 2995 and we, you know, we have a good, good margin built into it. But, um, yeah, if we were to do cost plus, it would be so expensive. So, um, you know, three grand is right at that point where a guy goes, yeah, I spent like, eight grand for the rotor unit that sits there. Why not spend another three grand and get this huge production boost? So again, going back to the market decides pricing. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I've spent 1500 bucks on a normal vice that I sure. can't rotate on a fourth axis. So, you know, it's, mm-hmm. that makes total sense. Um, that's really yeah. cool. I, I had no idea there was that much work put into them. Yeah. Very labor intensive. So you had mentioned uh, UMC 500. Uh, I guess let's talk about your process for deciding on new machinery and then maybe if you're willing to share a little bit about your new machinery that's coming. Yeah. So um, 
I'm going, I just, we just did a, a podcast. Uh, we haven't launched it or anything. We've got a few episodes in the can. We had Mark Terryberry from Haas out as a guest. Oh, that's awesome. Mark's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's the, the Haas factory is about 45 minutes from us and he's about 30 minutes from where, for, from where he lives. And I, I went on, on record saying that I feel that over time, the UMC 500 is going to be the new hot seller. It's going to be, I think I said, it's going to be the new VF2 SS. Now, I know that it's like almost double the price as a base VF2. But when you look at the the setup reduction and access to multiple sides of a workpiece, um, gosh, it's just where this industry is going. We don't have any uh, five-axis mills. That's why I bought that one. I think the price is right. Um, the the support is right. Uh, probably not not the greatest five-axis machine out there because uh, Haas is more of a value brand, but it's accurate. I mean, I'm sure there's Okumas or uh, Matsuras or whatever, or DMG Moris that are better. Um, well, I would probably say they are, but man, to, to put it in a shop for you know a little over a hundred grand is is just awesome. And um, so my my process process in buying machinery in general is um, I, I look at the first of all like if there's a process that we want to streamline like our vf4 ss every component every vacuum chuck every bottom plate everything except for the turned components in our vacuum line get made on the vf4 with standardized work offsets and every pocket of the 30 tool changer filled and that's it and so that is a process machine. We don't do prototypes. We don't do anything else on that. Our VF2C, uh, C being it's our third VF2, uh, our VF2C only runs pallets and uh, the bases for our mini and pro pallet system. That's it. We don't do anything else in it. So when I look at parts that maybe have multiple operations, the, the UMC 500, I go, oh man, we could, first of all, develop a product a round pallet system to palletize that so we can access multiple faces and just crank out just way more throughput than if we did like even uh, the rotovice or um, palletizing. It's, it's got its own place, uh, especially if you want to, like we do these hand valves that we want to redesign it and it ha- we have to access four faces and it's just an excuse for me to buy a five axis machine, to be honest. <laughs> um, but, but five axis is the future. Um, in 20 years, I think half of machines should be five axis, you know, the three axis VMCs will never go away. I get that. But five axis, that's just where the industry's going. I want a piece of that industry and, and I can't wait for it to, to arrive. So, um, um, and then, um, the other thing I, I would, uh, probably advise people is don't, don't always shop on price. Um, shop on ROI, return on investment. Um, like the robot, it costs roughly they're about um, thirty, forty, fifty thousand for the U. Uh, what is it? The UR three, five, and ten. Those are rough numbers. But I go, okay, this is a process that frees up an employee, and more, more importantly, a human to use his brain to work on developing better processes instead of standing and tending a machine. So. The fifty thousand dollar price tag for the UR10E, it's just that's just built into the company, um, kind of like the the ROI spreadsheet. And I go, yeah, that's going to pay off not just in dollars and cents, but also in freed up manpower and brain power, especially. So, um, but uh, again, I think the UMC five hundred perfect pricing for that type of machine. 
So what specs did you go with? Because I think I can't remember whose shop tour it was. One of the Johns, but you you know you didn't get probing on one of your machines. You didn't get the some other option because you you didn't think you were going to use it. You know you you knew it was going to be a process machine. So are you mm-hmm. you know probing and fully spec'd out, or where'd you land on your UMC? Yeah, so um, probing comes with it, uh, which is nice because um, uh, yeah, I just I probably would have gotten a probe with that uh, through spindle coolant. That'll be our first through spindle coolant machine. Um, Let's see, what was the other uh, chip auger, um, 50 tool, tool changer. Um, what else? High-speed machining, I can't, I can't remember if it came with it, but it does have high-speed machining. We opted to get that. And I think that's it. I, I try and keep my machines pretty basic because you can always add on. Right, um, yeah, Haas is great yeah. about that. Right. Um, did I get, I think I got an auto door. I'm not sure about that. I can't remember, but uh, yeah, pretty pretty basic. It was uh, it was specced well. I I went with the standard spindle, the 8100 RPM spindle. That's fine. I considered the um, the what is it, Capto or oh HSK? Um, yeah, thank you, HSK. Um, but yeah, I think it was like a sixteen or twenty thousand dollar price tag. And again, going back to that thing of that we try and standardize as much as possible. I just want a Cat 40 tool holder with the Haas retention knob. And so all our existing tooling will work in that. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have high speed really machining? Like, oh, go go for it, Peyton. Oh, I was just going to say, I really going back to one of your shop interviews. I believe you said something. You coined the phrase, "It's like if you buy three hosses, you get one free" type thing. And I really <laughs> like that thought process. Like you said, you can always add on later. And for right. doing pallets and whatnot, you don't really need a probe to some extent. Yeah, I mean, we we have our pallet base um, in the middle of the machine, and we we find the center of the round pin, that's our XY origin, and then the top of one of the four stainless pads as our Z0. And then in Fusion 360, we model everything up. So we're not finding edges, we're not probing, we're just pressing start, you know? And, and that's just the way to do it. Um, so yeah, my comment, uh, in different times I've spoken is there's only one machine in the entire shop out of what, nine, eight machines that has a probe, um, because the, the process dictated that it's, it's the machine again, the VF2C that makes pallets. They're cut from extrusions. Sometimes the extrusion is right on the money, eight inches wide. Sometimes it's eight inch 60 thou or seven inch 980. You know, and and then it's also saw cut, and um, I didn't want my guys um, having to center it perfectly. I just want them to put it in. Now the robots putting it in, probing it, and then creating very consistent parts with all the features centered. So that's why we got probing for the the VF two C. Um, yeah, but so so the most popular Haas machine is a VF two Super Speed, and I think that costs what like twelve grand more. You get probing for another six grand. You're up to eighteen. Um, you get the quad augers. Maybe that's another five. I don't know how much that costs. And then you multiply that by three or four machines. You could have gone without all those niceties and had a fourth spindle. And for us, I mean, for for a, uh, we're not a job shop, but for us, having s- available spindles is huge because say we. Um, like just a few days ago, an order came in for eight pallet systems. And then, so that's a significant portion of our, the, the purposely small inventory that we have, you know, on the shelf. We need to 
replenish that inventory. And now we need to put material in machines that are free, like today. And just having extra spindles open at, you know, if we have four machines, like we have four mills on the floor right now, um, we couldn't, oh no, we have five. Um, you know, if we were, if we had three, but they were super fast and super souped up, that would still not get us ahead as compared to two machines where one runs op one, the next one right next to it runs op two and we're flowing parts one piece flow. That's a lean term where by the end of the day or within the first hour, we have parts fully machined that we can go to first article inspection. So that's, that's the, the approach to multiple machines. Um, even if they're like less specced out. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you mentioned first article inspection. How do you guys go about inspection and documentation and, and all of that for your, your own products? Yeah. So when I look at the, the industry, I see inspection departments, inspection rooms, um, inspection people. Like this is my inspection guy. I think I've heard other people say that in the industry. Um, for me, gosh, that seems, that seems kind of backwards. Now I don't know the whole process that people follow in the industry, but instead of centralized one time first article inspection, I would rather have decentralized um, repetitive every 10th part inspection. So, you know, we have inspection tools that are at almost every machine, at least every other machine. And then we have um, a system of trays. So every, we have red dots on every 10th pocket in the tray. And we, we have plastic molded trays. I think they're vacuum formed. Uh, you can do like egg crates also, but just put, we put red dots at the bottom of that if the operator puts a component in that red dot, stop, stop the machine, don't press start, inspect that so that we have ongoing inspection, not just that first article inspection. So, um, and we do have like really good first article inspection type stuff. We don't have a CMM kind of weighing it. And I kind of don't feel like we need a CMM, CMM at this point. Uh, we have an amazing digital height gauge that's, that's makes life so easy. And then we'll make sure, hey, okay, the program is right. That just proves out that our, that our geometry and all the features are there. Then we go on to that decentralized, um, higher quantity inspection in the middle of the process. Okay. Do you have people cross-check each other's first articles or is it all just you trust your people, you've got a small crew and, and that's good enough? Yeah. So when we do the first article, it's the operator and the programmer. And usually if I see them meeting, I'll, I'll walk over just to watch, you know, and they're, they're used to that. The more eyes we can get on the first article, the more chances we're going to come to obviously picking up a problem. Um, a lot of the things that, that, uh, that I make the call on is surface finishes. So I'll look at it. I'll go, mm, no, let's switch out the end mill. Let's rotate them. You know, let's, let's move the finisher to the rougher position and get a new tool out of the, our, our parts, our, uh, our tool crib and, you know, put a new finisher. And that's, that's what I do at the beginning of a part run. Um, but then no, after that, it's pretty much, um, like John, he's the shop foreman. Now he'll walk by, he knows that at any time he can walk up to one of my operators and do a full article inspection at that point. And usually it's like, Hey, uh, which one did you not inspect? Because there's a good chance I'm going to pick one up that you did inspect because we do inspections so often. Okay. Yeah, that's a great process, especially for mm -hmm. the, the size degree you have. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, so one question Triple Caution Machine Works also contributed was uh, 
what do you think your greatest waste, if any, is currently? Oh, yeah, easy. Communication. Um, that crept up. I take full ownership of this uh, by not watching the culture of the business. So one of the, the tenants that Lean um, promotes is the morning meeting. We just started doing morning meetings. I thought I had invented a better system of going to each individual um, at the beginning of the morning and just catching up with them for five or 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and I would know what was going on in their life and what they had planned for the day and the customers that called and orders that got placed, but they didn't know between each other. That was a huge mistake. And, um, I went to this lean conference recently and I was talking to this guy at, at lunch and, you know, we're talking about the eight wastes. He said, we actually have nine wastes. So, wow, what's the ninth? He said, uh, poor communication slash drama. And I'm going, wow, that's pretty insightful. And so for us, yeah, our, our, our waste right now is, is communication. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it, and it creeps into the culture. If one guy has a, a rough day or is grumpy, that trickles throughout the rest of the company, just inevitably. Um, and so now the morning meetings, one of the, the first or second slides we do is what are you grateful for today? Just to get people in the right mindset. And, um, and in that, you know, how is your drive to work? How are you feeling health-wise, family? And then what did you notice about one of your coworkers that you were really appreciated? So um, yeah, getting, getting people's minds all, you know, on, on the same field and then um, making sure um, that communication is, is decentralized. Okay. Yeah, that's a great, I had never heard that way. So that's a really yeah. good insight. Yeah, it's not a traditional uh, lean waste communication. Um, w- well, when we moved into our current facility a year ago, uh, we went from, we doubled our floor space and it created obvious communication things like uh, Jerry, the general manager of the company, he's about 50 steps away from me. And so I can't see him. We both have offices with glass windows, still can't see him. So we started using Voxer. It's like a walkie-talkie app that we use all the time. So we nabbed those communication issues pretty fast. Um, but yeah, it was the cultural stuff that, that really caught us off guard. Okay. No, that's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really cool to see that like, you're really focused on the attitude of the company. Because like you mentioned, if one person's grumpy, that's just going to kind of ruin the day for everyone. And it's cool to see that you're really team oriented. It sounds like, you know, we're here to work. We're here to do the best we can. Let's get stuff out the door and uh, let's just get through the day in a positive way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, a huge day of sales, uh, the joy in that and the, the enthusiasm in that will totally get buried if I had an argument with one of my guys or two of my guys are pissed off at each other. You know, that's what I would go home thinking about. That's what they would go home thinking about. So really culture is huge. And culture is the more and more business owners I'm around company culture is so important. And if, if you can set that in uh, with lean principles, or if you are, uh, like I mentioned earlier, a benevolent person looking out for the interests of others before your own, um, you can create a beautiful company culture that really thrives in their relationships. Um, and, and then really at the end of the day, everyone's bank accounts. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Totally. 
I saw you hired uh, Carlos, who is mm-hmm. yeah. Um So he does, for anybody who doesn't follow him on Instagram, he should. He does a, a ton of electronics repair and really cool projects. That kind of led into the question of what's next for Pearson Workholding. You know, it, it, it seems like you guys are maybe venturing out into electronic-based things or including that into your future products. Yeah, absolutely. So Carlos is a rock star. He came to me. He he was at this uh, aerospace company that was shutting. Well, they're not shutting down, but they just weren't headed up. <laughs> they were on a downward trajectory. And he put some, um, his story to me was that he put out some, you know, resumes and he had some job offers and he couldn't decide. And then his wife one night just said, Hey, what do you, what do you really want to, what do you want to do? And where do you really want to work? Like your dream job. And he said, I'd love to work at this company called Pearson Workholding. And she's like, I've never heard that. What? Tell me more, you know? So he just shot me an email and I'm like, dude, I'm not looking to hire anyone, but come by. Um, just following him, I had followed his YouTube channel for at least a year and I thought, wow, this guy's awesome. You know, meeting him, we really clicked. Um, and so Carlos is, is bringing some of my long-term dreams into reality. So I love playing with Arduino, Raspberry Pi, all that stuff, um, electromechanical type things, motion control. And I, I had dreamt that Pearson Workholding would go the automation route at some point. But realistically, at the point that the company is, I've got so much to do just just in building, continuing to build Pearson Workholding, that the automation, that probably would have never gotten off the ground. So Carlos came to me. Again, he's a rock star. All my guys are rock stars. I don't hire non-rock stars for the most part. Um, he came to me and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to make this work. you know. And so um, also going back to the branding, you know how it says Pearson, and then it has our four point star with the tail below that. It says work holding. It'll soon say automation as a second branch of the company. So we will have Pearson automation as just a whole different segment of products that do everything from machine monitoring, uh, tool status. Uh, the first product we're going to come out with, hopefully even the next month is going to be a vacuum monitor switch, um, that, that is electronic and settable and works with all brands. Um, uh, we've got all these little things on, on, on his plate and we're right now we're literally buying thousands and thousands of dollars worth of electronic equipment to just get his lab set up. Cause factory 400, um, is his home workshop. It's a 400 square foot garage that is crammed with so many awesome toys, you know, mills, soldering machines, heat machines, you know, up, uh, pick and place circuit board machines um, and all these, you know, oscilloscopes and power supplies. It's just, it's like a, a, a grown up kid in a candy store type thing. <laughs> we are building that at Pearson work holding and to launch Pearson automation. So that's, that's going to be coming. I can't, I don't know when the branding is going to catch up, but the products are going to launch uh, as soon as we can. So yeah, he's great. Well, congrats. That's, that's a big get. And that sounds like a really big move for you guys. I'm totally. Yeah. Everyone's tickled pink. So Carlos is a former business owner. He does, uh, he had a, a company called solid camera that made high end accessories for the motion picture industry. So he feels my pain as a business owner. And so he's very conscious of that. So he's not 
spend, spend, spend. He didn't ask for a lot of money. Um, and he's, I think at, at his point, it, you know, it's not about the money these days. It's about the impact. It's about the contribution. It's about being able to be as free as possible to use your entire skill set. Carlos gets to do everything from circuit design, programming, machining. So he's just, he's just, he's all smiles these days. He's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. Uh, if I didn't enjoy where I worked at my day job as much as I do, I probably would have pushed much harder to go full time at my shop already because it's totally, you know, I love the people yeah. I work with. I love the work I get to do. So I, I definitely yeah. empathize with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, should we wrap it up there? Yeah, I think we covered a whole bunch. And uh, again, we really appreciate Jay, you know, making the time coming on, talking our ears off. And, and I mean, just they, I'm so surprised that you say you weren't prepared because I, you know, yeah, really. <laughs> I fantastic guest where we're really happy to have you on. Absolutely, I'd love to come back. Hint, hint. By the way, oh, <laughs> so. we are more than happy to have you around the the virtual roundtable anytime. Cool, sounds good. Yeah, especially when you get that UMC 500 going, I'm going to pick your brain. Yeah, yeah, I've been catching up, like I said, on the on the podcast, and I know you guys have gotten your eyes on them too. So yeah, we're going to do more videos about it too. I'd love to just promote the heck out of it, you know? So, um, yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. But I think that'll be, that'll do it for episode 14. Unless Dylan, you have anything else to say? No, just thanks for joining everybody and, uh, go ahead and check out Pearson Workholding on their website, their amazing YouTube channel, Instagram, all that stuff. Check out within tolerance podcast on Instagram. Um, and then Peyton and I personal Instagrams, uh, Proteum machining and hex gadgets. Yeah, so that'll do it for episode 14. Once again, thank you, Jay, for coming on. You're definitely going to come back when you get that machine. I can guarantee you that. Um, Great. But yeah, we'll see you guys next Wednesday for episode 15 with Dylan and I. And other than that, we'll see you next week. Thanks.